and welcome to another episode of Lily High on Life. And today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce you all to. Harley Metcalf, welcome to Lily High on Life. Thank you, Lily. I'm happy to be here. Well, I heard you speak yesterday and I was really taken aback because you from grew up in New South Wales, an Aussie boy, have made your mark on the world and have been not just connected, but actually worked with virtually every single celebrity in the entertainment world coming out of Melbourne. So we'll talk a little bit about that later and I won't ask you to list them because the list is just endless, but tell people what you, a little bit about what you're doing today because you're living back in Sydney and uh, and the things that are exciting you about your life. Well, if you look at the immediacy of today, this week, I'm actually in Melbourne with an exhibition of the art of Billy Connolly. Uh, Billy Connolly's an old friend of mine that I was introduced to in the early 80s and I became the promoter of his concerts in Australia. Wow. I toured Billy nine times uh, up until his last performance in 2015 and his subsequent retirement. Uh, I think in all somewhere around 500 shows in the, over those years, about a, a million tickets. And maybe just talk about some of the other people you've worked with in that high celebrity status because you can't list all of them, but we'll mention them throughout. Yeah, it kind of goes on forever, but really I started in the international industry. I've worked for two years with Australian artists, and, and they were from Billy Thorpe, Sherbert, Hush, Max Merritt, um, a number of Aussie acts, which I, I loved working for, and I continue to work with Aussie acts. But I got introdu- introduced to international talent in 1973 and I started promoting those shows in 1974 and the first seven months was just it it set how the rest of my life the next 50 years was going to run I worked in seven months I worked with B.B. King Hank Stone and the Rainbow Ranch Boys John Mayle John McLaughlin the Marfishnell Orchestra and unbelievably Frank Sinatra. So this is 93, becoming 1994. So I had this massive introduction. It was, a, it was today it's like a blur. It's like some, someone else did that. And, and following that, you know, I toured Elton John eight times, Queen, Lionel Richie, a few Rod Stewart tours, the Doobie Brothers, Meatloaf, um, Little Feet, I mean, it's hard, Dion Warwick, it's just hard to remember. Yeah. Marlene, uh, and the I mind, Marlene Dietrich. Marlene Dietrich <laughs> as well. And the mind-blowing thing about it is that you did this out of Australia. You didn't have to leave Australia to get involved with all of these exciting international stars. Yeah, I, I got to stage where I would, every, twice a year, I, I would go to Los Angeles and London to meet people and meet agents and talk about it. But my whole life has been built on relationships. A few people I met uh, mentored me, uh, took me under their wing, liked the way I did business, and they helped me secure these artists. And and I I wasn't really 
ever in a competitive environment, the artist toured for me. I mean, people like Meatloaf, um, who became one of my dearest friends. You know, I, I worked with him in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and we became friends. Billy Connolly, we became friends. And that's what I love about what you were talking about yesterday also, was that your life really highlights relationships. Yeah, my, my whole life has been about relationships. I mean, firstly, in the mid-70s, I was introduced to a man called Kevin Ritchie. And in, in funny circumstances, because I was touring with Hank Snow and the Rainbow Ranch Boys, these sort of conservative old Nashville people, very quiet, we ended up sharing a lounge, the, the ANSET group lounge at Adelaide Airport in 1976. And Kevin Ritchie was there with Susie Quattro. And when we walked in, you know, Hank Snow is a delightful man. I mean, if anyone has seen the Elvis movie, there's Hank Snow, you'll know who he is. He was Colonel Tom Parker's big act. And he was top of the bill. And when Colonel Tom found Elvis, he put Elvis on the bottom of the bill. And before long, he had to kick Hank off the top and put Elvis. So that was Hank Snow. I mean, quite a legendary wow. man himself in the, in the industry. So my job became sort of separating the rock and rollers who were sort of sledging Hank's hairpiece and their clothes and as a rock and rollers do, having fun. And in the middle of this, I met Kevin Ritchie. So when you were meeting all of these people who were established celebrities at mm. the time, how did you go into it? Because that's part of creating relationships with people, is how you react to them, how they react to you. Do you remember, like, what your mindset was? Firstly, because yeah, firstly, my father gave me a, a good advice. Look him in the eye and give him a firm hang, handshake. And that's the way, you know, when you approach someone, I look in, I give you a good handshake. You know, hi, I'm Harley. How are you going? And, and, and it just opens. I'll talk to anybody. Um, but you find, you know, these artists, they're just normal people. A lot of people stand off and they like you to say hello. They don't want you to be stand off or, or be shy. So I learned just to engage and introduce yourself, look them in the eye. That was good advice from my dear old dad. And you treated them the way you would a mate in back in Australia, or differently? Well, that's that's what we do in Australia. You know, yeah. You know, we're all the same. We're all just people. We all put our pants on in the morning. You know, so, you know, I had the usual anxieties of a younger person. You know, but I was able to cross that bridge pretty quickly. Mm. You know. And amazingly successfully, because you repeated it over and over again with different people, which means there's an authenticity and a realness in you and who you are and how you presented yourself. Well, well Kevin Ritchie, who brought me into his company, Duet, in 1976, he was, he was sort of a revered person. He was the original, I will shake your hand and we will do a deal and I will stand by that deal. He's an, uh, an amazing person, and he had this relationship with Elton John and his manager John Reed, and there was never a contract. You know, he just they just shook hands with Kevin. This is the deal. Let's get it done. So, wow, you know, that's I got, really I got wow. Taught by Kevin to be respectful. I 
to be honest, to be transparent, uh, to work hard. You know, he looked after me and helped me and drove me and put me in opportunities where I was tested. And, you know, the whole thing through this whole period in the sort of the 70s into the early 80s, I just considered myself as lucky. You know, I'm so, I'm, look, look where I am, I'm so lucky. I was never thinking, how did I get here or where am I going to go? I was just, this is great, I'm lucky, let's just keep going. And you were building on the values that your father gave you as well. well. I was, yeah, I was building on those values and I was learning. Um, I always, I, I watch people closely, I watch what they do, what they say, um, how, how they conduct themselves. But, you know, still for me, I had no plans. When I, when I left school in 1969, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I literally fell into this business by renting a little hall on the northern beaches of Sydney at Motorvale, hiring a couple of bands, and I made 50 bucks. It's like, oh my God, because I was working as a tree lopper for 49, <laughs> you know, five days a week chopping wood. And here I am on Saturday night. So I thought, well, what if I can do it on Friday night? So there was a sort of a catalyst. And my father would look at me and shake his head and go, you need a trade. When, when this hobby finishes, you're going to have nothing. So learn a trade. And I'm like, mm, no, I'm too busy. And it just came along. You know, Billy Thorpe was one of the first people who encouraged me. You know, he did a show for me at Mona Vale. I paid him 200 bucks and said, you know, come back next month. He says, no, I'm not driving from Melbourne for 200 bucks, but if you have a, a number of other shows with it, I'll come. So I, was, I thought about it, I thought about it. So I built this itinerary to start in Albury, to Griffith, to Canberra, to Wollongong, and ended up in Cairns, 22 shows. So I went back to Billy and his manager, Michael Browning, and said, Here's 22 shows. Is that, is that enough? And they were like, <laughs> okay. What I <laughs> love about go. that story is that back in the day, mm. that was not normal because everybody went to, anybody from a good family went mm. to uni because yeah. that's just what you did and it so doesn't what, matter what you did. Was, and it was what was expected of me. Exactly. Like my, my parents expected me to go to, go to university. My, my grades were okay. But... but I couldn't find the challenge. Yeah. I couldn't find the challenge. I was restless, uh, uncertain, insecure, had no idea what I wanted, and I wasn't prepared to do anything until I knew what I wanted. And in these days where a lot of the majority of kids have no idea what they want to do, very few know that they want to do whatever it is. So this story actually is great for them because what you're saying is you will find yourself. I do a lot of, <coughs> a lot of mentoring. Um, I was made um, adjunct professor of arts and entertainment faculty at Queensland University of Technology, which is a really a great honour. Absolutely. And I go up and I, I talk to these kids. Sometimes I like the small groups, maybe ten or twelve, to talk to them. But sometimes, like, well, you know, there's three hundred. You're going to talk to them. So I, I, at first, I really struggled in the large groups because I knew what was coming. After I told them who I am and what I did and what I'd learnt, it's like, yeah, great. You know, how do I get a job? That's all I want to know. How? How? Because I don't think the university teaches that. And I, I tried to work out. I tried to say, well, you know, I sort of stumbled around. And then I came across the saying, "With it's called the job finds you." 
So that, and, and I really like that. So it's like, how do I get a job? Well, the job finds you. What does that mean? Well, okay, um, you do it. You find the job yourself. No one's going to give it to you. You get out, you meet people, you go to Queensland Performing Arts Centre or any of the, the bodies. Be a volunteer. Get your foot in the door. Do anything. Sweep the floor. Whatever it takes. Get in there and meet people and find your point of difference and always follow what's your point of difference well you could start with manners please and thank you that sets you apart present yourself well don't be late be early early is on time these sort of things are what sets you apart so that's what i started talking about and these kids started responding i get it the job finds me. I've got to get out there. I've got to network. And all these things that you can do today that you couldn't do when I was a kid. Create your own network. Get your LinkedIn page. Tell the stories. Make them up. Yeah. You know. And there are very few people that have the innate ability to work this out for themselves. So you spelling it out like that is a huge service. It's really simple. You know, I think today it's instant gratification for everything comes from the media that we watch or the radio or anything that's going around it all has to happen now but the truth is life doesn't happen now life's a journey and you learn every step of the way and you've got to take control of yourself I think one of my greatest regrets is I really didn't work out who I was till mid-30s I was just the lucky guy and the truth is the lucky guy eventually luck's going to run out Maybe. Mine didn't because I worked out that actually it's not about luck. I actually got put in a situation with Elton John in 1984, which was one, two, three, my fourth tour, my fifth tour with Elton John. And that all been, I was I was lucky. I, organ, I got through, organised everything, but that tour was really intense. There was a lot going on. Um, he was at the peak of his crazy time. He got married. There was just pressure, intense pressure on on everybody. And all that pressure fell on me. And I got through it. I fixed the problems. All these dramas that happened, I fixed fixed them. You took them and fixed them or there was nobody else doing it? So you knew that you had to... It stopped with me if I didn't fix them the two would have fallen apart. Right. So it was, um, mother was a necessity of invention for you at the time. There, was, there, were, there can only be in an environment like that, there can only be solutions. And if you can't provide them, you need to go away. Yeah. So I, I provided the solutions. I made everything happen. And at the end, I thought, you know, you've got this unique ability to fix things, fix people, fix problems, solve problems. Uh, make things happen, survive pressure, survive stress, and come out of it okay. And that I started thinking, you know, I've got to take more control. It, it, it can't just be about luck. I didn't do these things because I was lucky. I did these things because I've learnt what to do and know what to do. And, and, and making those decisions kind of opened the world to me. All of a sudden, I could do anything I wanted. And what a fabulous thing to discover, because now that you say it, we assume that people who are out in front are, are the smartest, the wisest, and would fix their own problems. Like Elton John, are you kidding me? What could he possibly want for? And yet, it took someone else 
to fix what he needed fixed at the time? Well, simple things. I want to get married. It's like, okay, when you want to get married? Next week. Well, let me have a look here. Okay, it's it's whatever it was. Eight weeks, ten weeks. And they didn't a have a gay license. marriage at that no, time. No, no, he married Renata. Yes. Um, but Did that surprise you? Oh, nothing surprises me. <laughs> no, it didn't surprise Fair me. Fair enough. She was on the tour. They were happy. They got married. But he wanted to get married. The following week in New South Wales, it was like eight weeks to get a marriage license. Mm. So, like, you know, he says, well, fix it. <laughs> so what do you do? You ring the Attorney General and you say, hey, Mr. Attorney General, Elton wants to get married. I need a marriage license and I need it tomorrow or by Friday at the latest. <laughs> it's like, you know, are you crazy? I said, no, I'm not. You know, can I come and talk to you? And we call that chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, I know. We just got to do it. Yeah. Um, so we got the marriage license and got married. But there was things that happened, you know. Um, we had on that tour, it was called Two Loafers Zero. It had this amazing one of the biggest lighting rigs of the time and it was all made of triangles and steel and what happened you know it all it got lost it got it got lost on the side of the airport in Auckland and we had a show to do in Melbourne and Elton's like well sorry I either have my lighting rig or there's no show okay so I thought, okay we're going to build a new lighting rig overnight so I had a few mates. The late Ron Blackmore was a, was an amazing production and concert promoter in Melbourne. I rang Ron and said, "Okay, so I've got the plans of these designs of London. Well, so who do you know that at nine o'clock at night owns a steel warehouse who will open up and sell us all this stuff?" He's like, "Leave it with me." And he was. I love that. Ron was, Ron was a, a genius at this sort of stuff. So he found the guy got him to the warehouse, we got the trucks there, we hired um, all these steel um, welders and we had a hangar at um, Essendon, a Tullamarine, and we laid everything out and these guys worked all night until they dropped <laughs> cutting and welding and, and making these lighting rigs which we got delivered to the venue up in the air the light, with the lights and the show went on. Fabulous. It sounds easy, but Jesus. Not that it sounds easy, but it's the attitude. Yeah. Okay, how do we get how this we, done rather than, shit, this yeah. is going to fall yeah. apart. Yeah. So it really is the attitude and, and yeah. what you say to yourself yeah. about done. different situations. Just solutions get it done. Only. Solutions only. <laughs> so you're, uh, and again, it was relationships. You had relationships with people who could jump in and knew you I were... Tons of silly stories. I'll, I'll go back to Elton again. In 1990, we were in Melbourne flying to Perth for the next series of shows. We finished in Melbourne and everything was great. I'd hired a, a, a jet, private jet for Elton, was sitting out at the private strip in Essendon and we had four limos. Fortunately, we had mobile phones just. We had the big bricks. <laughs> and we, 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 we get in the car, we pull out. We're like literally two minutes away from the hotel, and I, and I get a phone call. Well, I'm really sorry to tell you, but um, the jet that you've chartered, it belongs to Alan Bond. 
and it's just been repossessed. In fact, at this moment, it's taxing on the runway and it's taking off and it, you, you no longer have a jet. Wow. And we're like almost barreling onto the freeway. So another wonderful old friend of mine, Grant Thier, who sadly passed away two years ago, ran a company called Show Travel and he was incredibly well connected. So I ring Graham, hey mate, I need a jet, I need it now. I need it on the strip in Essendon. We're on the way. We'll be there in 30 minutes. He's like, leave it with me. Wow. So he gets onto the charter companies, finds the, the um, an HB7 owned by the ANZ Bank, I think it was, was actually had just finished service out there in the hangars and was available for charter and they were pushing it out right now and it will be there waiting for you when you arrive. I love so that. We, this is an interesting story. So we get there and uh, cars pull up, you know, we're on time, Ellen's a time freak, everyone's buzzing. We get on, the six of us get on the plane, doors close, Cheers. <laughs> and we start taxing out and then we stop to allow whatever traffic, aircraft traffic is. And another dear friend sitting there, his name is Ken, and he was the sponsorship guy from Qantas. And he goes, well, while we start, I'm going to go to the toilet. So he gets up, walks to the back of the plane, opens the door and goes, oh, my God. There's just a hole in the rush to get this out. They had not put the toilet oh back God. in. So if we would have taken off, we would have crashed. Thank God. So anyway, <laughs> banging on the pipe saw, turn around, go back. <laughs> Elton's not happy. What's, you know, you can see him sort of starting to flare up and, and Ken Gross goes, well, dear, if you flew Qantas, this would not have happened. <laughs> and, and Elton found that was funny. He's laughing, the mood's broken, the toilet gets installed, off we go to Brisbane. To, you know, in Jewish, there's a saying, Bashert. Mm. Bashert means, mm. means it's meant to be. Meant to so be. he was supposed to go to the toilet. Yeah, we were not meant to die that day. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, they're just silly things. Um, do these things sometimes come to your mind at night as you're going to sleep or something and no. just memories of a life that was? You know, I think I said, I kind of look at my life and it's, it's like someone else did it. You know, it's a 50-year period of, of all these, you know, travels around the world and shows and people and craziness and no sleep. Um, it just is like this big... Maze. And you really, if you're enjoying this interview, as I know you will be, you've got to Google Harley Medcalf because you can't list, it would take the whole program to list the number of artists that he's actually worked with. So. Well, there's plenty, and you won't find much of me online, to be honest, I don't so let's go back to um, this, to Billy Connolly and your relationship with him and how you come to be touring his artwork at the moment. Well, my relationship with Billy Connolly came from the gentleman I mentioned earlier, John Reid. John Reid was Elton John's manager, Queen's manager. He was a shareholder in Duet when I joined the company Duet Productions. And in 1979... The Compu Ticket crash with Harry and Miller. We had just the night before done Rod Stewart at the, at the Sydney Showground, 
and CompuTicket had all the money and they went bankrupt. So God. The, the, com- the company was decimated and John said, you know, look, you can have the desk and the phone. I don't need that, but I'm going to leave it to you. I'm not going to put any pressure on you. I'm like, it's yours. I'm, you know, I'm done. But he, but he stayed as a mentor and a quarterback for the company, and he and he would tell everyone he knew, if you're going to Australia, you work for Duet. That's and he was so powerful. Everyone's like, okay, if it's good for you, it's good for us. So he obviously continued to send Elton. He sent Queen back in 1985. Um, he introduced me to Lionel Richie, to Michael Flatley, and he sent me up as Barry Humphrey's manager and producer in in the late 1980s. And that was a relationship that lasted 20 years. But in the middle, in 1984, he became Billy Connolly's manager. So we became Billy's promoter through that relationship with John. And so from Rocky Beginnings, mm. you um, are now he, you now consider him one of your closest friends, uh, and you're I, working. I, I love Billy. I just adore Billy. He is one of the unique human beings in the world. He's a beautiful man. He gives everybody everything every day of his life, and that's a gift. It really is, especially from someone who's been given so much. It's not usually the way they go. So when did he start um, drawing, painting? Well, he started drawing in 2007. He was on a movie set in Toronto and it was pouring down with rain and everything was on hold. So Billy loves walking. You know, it doesn't matter. Rain, hail, shine. He, He does his walk. So he goes out. And he spies an art shop. Oh, I'll just go in here and have a bit of a look. And he thought, oh, I've got nothing to do. So he bought some pads and pens and some sketching you know, paraphernalia. And he went back to the hotel and he started to draw. And he thought, oh, I'm, this is therapeutic. I like this. He kept drawing and drawing. And then Pamela saw it and said, hey, Billy, this, what are you doing is amazing. You know, and, and then she showed it to an art dealer, a friend of theirs in London. They said, "This is this. There's a market for this. This is incredible." So here we are, eight series of Billy Connolly's editions later. And some of the work, the the drawings of people, actually kind of look like him. Well, they've all got his <laughs> view on life. You know, dogs bigger than people. Biggest thing on your body is your feet. I mean, all these Connolly-esque things that he would often talk about on stage. Obsessed with feet. Um, you see all that, and you see such joy and humour in the way you look. You know, things like he's just sketched raining on the moon. It's just bizarre, but it's Connolly. And you can own one yourself. You can own a Billy Connolly. We have a website called bornonarainyday.com.au which is all about when his art started on that rainy day. Fabulous. You know, it's all there. You can have a look and you can ring me up and talk to me or... I'll absolutely um, put the website in with with the biography and description of the show. Um, So he got involved in a foundation. He set up his own foundation. Billy? Yes. No, the, not Billy. That's Steve. We got the wrong. Billy. No, but doesn't Bill, doesn't the art proceeds from the artwork? No, no, no. Billy's the art, artwork. No, go. the art proceeds go to Billy. And oh, okay. And a little okay. tiny Scottish right. discount that I get goes to me. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah. So Steve Y. Steve War is War. The, is the foundation that I work with. He's another client. You know, in 
Well, I went through two big sort of shake-ups in my thinking in my life. One was in 1984, and then in 1998, I got fired by Elton John. And, and, and that was a really dramatic event for me. Here was this act who had defined the top end of my career. I'd done eight tours with Elton. <clears throat> it was a fairly you know, significant part of my life, and I loved that part of my life. And I had his manager, John Reed, who was mentoring me, and they broke up. Elton and John broke up as, well, originally they were, they were lovers, and then it was a business relationship, and now that was over. Wow. And, and, the, and, and the ruling No came, warning, no. No warning, no. In fact, it, we found out, we went to see Elton perform in London after the Australian tour in 1998, which was a massive tour with Elton John and Billy Joel. Huge, huge hugely successful. So we'll go and see the show in London. So off we go, and then, you know, we walked into the, direct, the dressing room, you know, I, I got a hug with Elton, how are you? I'm so happy you came, where are you staying? Good common question. I said, well, actually, we're staying in the cottage at John Reed's house. And he just turned around and walked out. Hello. What just happened? And then I get told, oh, John and Elton separating. Business relationship is over, so he does not know the fact you with, with John. I said, well, I can't do much about it, you know? Anyway, I got summoned to the lawyer's office and I was told that you're Because you were friends with both of you're them. You're friends with both. I was told you're either an Elton person or you're a John Reed person. You decide which. And that decision will then define any ongoing relationship. So I looked, I said, okay, I'll, I'll come back and talk to you tomorrow. So I went home and I sat down with my wife, Maria, and we talked about who we are and what it represents and, and, and what are we going to do? What's our decision? And our decision was that we're friends with both. I can't walk away from John Which Reed. Which is right. Who'd given me so much. I can't just say to John, see ya, thanks, I'm going with Elton, and I couldn't say to Elton and be honest with myself, oh great, I'm going to dump John and come over. Because he, Elton, insisted that I went to court on his side in the court case against John Reed. And it's like, but, you know, really? So we decided we're friends with both, but that wasn't good enough. So we were, that day, fired from Elton, and it was really dramatic for me. I can imagine. What were some of the thoughts that went through your head when you realised oh, that... I first thought, I've just, I've just given away millions of dollars worth of income. <laughs> no, the first thought was, okay, well, let's, you can define yourself in this. Let's look at what's important to you, you know, what's important. And Did I you just, cry? Oh, several times, several times. And it really, it really upset me because it, it affected my relationship with my peers and other people in the industry, and it was a big deal. But it's like, I feel it Could made you, me... You made couldn't me as, talk about it with no, Elton no, directly? No, no, lawyers, lawyers only. Only lawyers. Lawyers only, lawyers only. And you have an amazing relationship with your wife, so she was obviously well, was, there. We, we both made this decision together because it was a big decision, but I actually feel that was the next changing, defining moment in my life, who I was. I'd made this decision based on what I believed in. Um, and that includes, you know, honesty, ethics, loyalty, uh, friendship, family. And so I can't just divide this. I'm not, I refuse to do it. I'll never forgive myself. If so I you were able to talk it through and feelings through. and everything. And I came out life. the other end and I thought, okay, I'm changing my life. 
Um, I do all these things for other people. I give them everything when I work. Um, but going forward, I want ownership. I want ownership of what I, what I do. I want to own IP. I want to run and create my own events and I want to be different and, and that was another massive change of direction in my life and that was the end of the 1990s. Now, I'd already started managing Barry Humphreys a few years before that and I was now producing his shows all around the world. I owned what I was doing. I was in a partnership with Barry. That was pretty good. I'd come up uh, with this concept actually at Elton's 50th birthday party in London which was a costume party and unbelievably the entertainment was ballroom dancing. Now why the hell would you have ballroom dancing in 1997 when it meant nothing to anybody but Elton's a visionary. Before the movie came out. Before the movie came out. So Elton decided to have ballroom dancing so you visualize this here's a we're in the Hammersmith ballroom there's 600 people there everyone's in costume from Andrew Lloyd Webber, to Queen, to Rod Stewart, to Billy Joel, to Shirley Bassey, anyone you could think of in the end time is there dressed in costume. And as the evening got to the sort of climax, this huge cake came out and out, out of it leaps John Reed, happy birthday, and following him, 12 ballroom dancers. Now there was so much, after John came out, the room went nuts. But all of a sudden these dancers came out and they kind of electrified the place. There were these young, good looking kids, not doing ballroom dancing that you thought in your mind, this crusty old couple um, with fake makeup and wigs. These young kids, barely dressed at all, amazing bodies. And the room went nuts again, wow. sort of separated. And I'm kind of looking at this and, we just finished working a lot with Michael Flatley. And I thought, well, I can do something with this. I can, I, you know, so I went down and I spoke to these dancers, who, a couple of them were from Australia. They were young, 18, 19, and 20, and they were all competitive world champions, chip stand wow. dancers. But, they, you know, what's your life like? Well, I, you know, I have three jobs. I wash dishes, I, I clean this house with this lady, I do this or that. I, I need to earn money to uh, pay my teacher, who is also the judge of the next competition, so I can be favorably looked at and improve my technique. So they're living these amazing lives, and it was all about commitment and work ethic and history and art form, things that I love. So I thought, I'm gonna, they said, come and watch us. We're at the Royal Albert Hall next week. We're gonna organize you to come to the show. So I went to see the British Open, in Royal Albert Hall, and there was these young kids, this amazing talent, but the kind of spotlight was about two feet behind them. The lighting was terrible. The costumes were like just so garish and so much makeup and fake tan. I thought, let's revolutionize this. Let's, let's make it rock and roll. So I hired a few friends um, who were great rock and roll designers. I said, I'm to create this show. And, it's, and that's how Burn the Floor started. That was uh, 1998, into 90, we started touring in 1999. And here we are 25 years later, I've got 93 dancers in the company. Wow. Every day of the year, there's at least three, sometimes four Burn the Floor shows somewhere in the world. 
every single day. Now, but it today. didn't take in Australia because you're bringing it no, back no, now. No, we, well, we're bringing it back with a twist. But yeah, we've toured here eight times. You know, we do well here. We've really great following. I'm, I've, I've created an, an indigenous version. Awesome. I found this guy uh, called Mitch Tambo just looking online who was singing You're the Voice in his own language. I was like, oh my God, I want to meet this guy. So I rang him up as I do and introduced myself and said, oh, I love Burn the Floor. Like, you, you know Burn the Floor? I said, yeah, I love Burn the Floor. I love what you do. So said, well, I, want, I love what you do and I want us to conspire to create an indigenous version of Burn the Floor. Your music, our music, your choreography, our choreography. Let's mix it up and create. We created this show called Wollumbar Eulogy, and that starts next year in Australia, in, in Melbourne, actually, in Crown. Definitely in looking July. forward to seeing it's it. it's going to be amazing. I mean, but it's that, that sort of... I like reaching out to people. You know, we mentioned Steve Wall before, and in my... Yes, let's go late, back there. In my late 90s when I was like, you need to do things that that are yours, that challenge you, that are different. And so a friend of mine said, oh, look, I met Steve Wall the other day. He's in, a, he's in a bit of a mess. You know, he's captain of Australia, number one cricketer in the world. He, 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 wants, a, he wants a new manager. So like, oh, right. you got his number? So I, I ran, just rang him up. So, you know, hey, Steve. I love that. <laughs> my name is Harley Metcalf. I work in the entertainment industry and I heard that you're looking for a manager and he said well why would I talk to you I'm looking for a sports manager and I said no you're not Steve you're looking for someone who's going to put sport and entertainment together and own that space and that's me and he goes well that's different <laughs> let's let's meet up we met three times he asked me you know first off well what's important to you in life you know and I'm I know now what's important to me is in, in, by the end of the 80s, I knew, you know, commitment, hard work, honesty, transparency, family, mm. legacy. And he goes, you got me at legacy. So we, we started a relationship which is 23 years later today going, going really well. He's an amazing person. And you've done a couple of projects with him and he has a, a foundation. Yeah, he has the Steve Waugh Foundation, which was started. I mean, you think of Steve Waugh and thinks so he's got a charity in India. Well, he, he does. You know, in, in, uh, in he started uh, funding a charity in Calcutta called Udayan, which is for young girls from leper colonies. Wow. So let take a leper colony, they look after the boys because they can earn money, they sell the girls at six years old, eight years old, to get money, sell them to someone to put them on the street. So Udayan um, was a home for boys. So she said, well, you know, I want to build a home for girls here at Udayan as well. So he built a, uh, a wing for 200 girls, which today has been running for all these years. And that's what everyone thinks is a Steve Ward charity. But in, in Australia, when he retired, he wanted to start a charity here. And he worked, he and his wife Lynette, really researched and researched, and they found a gap in the market with kids with rare disease. Like I'm talking the rarest of rare disease. No diagnosis, no funding. Wow. Um, short life prognosis, no funding. Uh, too difficult, no funding. Don't understand, no funding. You need the money now, no funding. So 
He started this foundation, which I joined in 2004. Today, he looks after 3,300 kids with rare disease in Australia. Amazing. And it's an amazing, in typical war, it's all below, no one knows, all below the radar. He doesn't care about that. And that's, the th- and that's the thing, there are so many people who really need help. I mean, to yeah. think in this day and age, yeah. there are girls that are sold well, onto India, the street, especially... Yeah, it's just the way it is. Even in India, but they're, but as you say. No money. But mm-hmm. here, you know, if your child has a rare disease, you, you, they're like the orphans of the health system. You know, you can't, yeah. a lot of them, you, no prognosis. No one knows what your disease is. It's so rare. That's amazing, but sorry, because it can't get a diagnosis, you can't get funding. Oh, really? And how many have they managed to diagnose or help or put... Well, we've got 3,300 that we look after. And once you're a recipient of the foundation, you know, we did say 25, but initially kids, not to 25, we know got kids who've been with us past 25, we'll stay with them. Um, and we have three grant rounds a year and we add around 100. You match them with doctors or you find... Yeah, well, mostly, interesting, you know, we've got... um, Most of it comes from the hospital system. So the hospital system um, know the families, know the circumstances, know the problems, know the prognosis. Know to contact the foundation. And they know about us. So, you know, they come to us and say, look, you know, there's this family here, they've got a child who's got often a disease that you can't even pronounce and you know they're working two jobs and they're in trouble we can help we can help and do you look at them and actually help with things like um what they need to actually live as well as their medical treatment absolutely it's more about it's not about the medical treatment's easy you know medication is expensive um, but so are batteries for the machines that keep these kids alive. So simple things, batteries, you don't think about batteries can be thousands of dollars a year. Right. These families can't afford hardly with food. Yep, so you so, cover everything. Well, you've got, um, we've got my, my favourite girl, she's bedridden. She's never been out of bed in her life. She can barely talk and her lungs need to be pumped constantly to remove the fluid, constantly. Um, so there's a machine, a computer out there that you can communicate through your eyes. So you, f- you, know how you focus on A, or you want to say you H, you focus on the E, L, L, O, and you press the button and it says hello. Wow. And so, so she communicates. you and Steve actually get involved with the individuals in your... Well, Steve and Lynette, my job's fundraising. I like doing events and raising money. But it sounds like you obviously get... um, I I love meeting the families. We have this thing called Rare Starter every year where we bring a lot of families together. We haven't been able to do it in COVID. We can't do it this year because it's still risky for these kids to travel. They're very susceptible. Um, But you'd get 100 families from all around the country would come together with the kids. Um, You get to meet the kids, which is great. The parents get to meet other parents and realise So, just going back to your other life, um, you've said that sometimes you today you find it amazing that you actually lived through some of the experiences and people that you met in circumstances, and it doesn't quite 
seem real and you were actually there. Do you remember at the time when you were actually living it, um, did you... I guess um, um, what I want to know is a series of things starting with, did your parents finally relax? Did they get to meet that's, some that's, of these celebrities? That's, that's a great question. My parents are horrified, really. They had dreams of my name up on the legal building or whatever it was. <laughs> and here I was, running around a bunch of, and I had a party at home with Billy Thorpe. I lived with my parents at the time and Billy brought all these people and it was loud and noisy my mother loved it my father not so much um, so they were like a bit strange um, about what was going on but then in July of 1974 I got to tour manage Frank Sinatra and when I announced that it was like oh <laughs> you mean the Frank Sinatra and suddenly here was something they could talk to their friend. What's your son doing? Oh, let's not talk about that. What's your son doing? He's working with Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and all of a sudden... And you took them to the concert. I took them to the concert. And all of a sudden, it was okay. Oh, my dad was still saying, you know, this is, this is great. This must be exciting for you. But, but in your spare time, study for a trade. Something that you can fall back on. <laughs> when all this ends. And you were never worried about yourself? Well, I never really thought about it, to be honest. You know, I'm the lucky, at that stage, I'm, I'm the lucky guy. You know, I'm getting yeah. paid to do something which is a lot of fun and supposedly glamorous and whatever. So I wasn't worried about it yeah. at all. It didn't worry me. It just, everything just sort of kept rolling on. <laughs> And you, um, during those really great high times, were there low times as well? Were there disappointments? Oh, look, no, not in those times. I, you know, as I said, I'm lucky. Everything's great. Life yeah. is amazing. I'm flying all around the world. I'm on private jets. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I didn't think about it other than the fact, God, you know, I'm so lucky. Where did all this luck come from? I'm lucky. It wasn't after later in life when you know you get fired by Elton John and then you get an email from Barry Humphreys after 20 years saying I no longer require your services um, those sort of disappointments and I had a fight with Susie Quattro and she wasn't working with me and they start to weigh you down eventually and, and, and must come and because you're ahead. built on relationships, yeah. it wasn't just being fired from a job. There was a whole emotional fired from thing. A life, fired, 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 fired from your lifestyle, from your life, being separated from what you do and, and feeling disrespected or, um, you know, just out of, out of place. And that did, I had a really bad time. Um, I just turned 60 when Barry Humphreys fired me and I found that was the one that's going to push me off the edge. I had a couple of years where I just, all I could do was think about all the bad things in my life, not all the amazing things I was doing. I was more fixated than that. And, and in the end, my wife said, you, you got to go to a therapist. It's like, you know, I don't need a therapist, Maria. I said, yes, you do. So I sort of, spoke to my doctor, I got a number, and I sort of lost it a couple of times. <laughs> and then I sort of realised, you know, well, you know, I think you might. Won't hurt. It won't hurt. It won't hurt. And uh, 
that was tough. You know, she knew straight away which buttons to push. And I, Very I, lucky you found a good one. Yeah, she was good. The first month I was a mess. And then on, on week six, she said to me, you know, Holly, you are who you are. You are your work. Get on with it. <laughs> so, and that, that sort of kicked you into gear again? It kicked me into gear. It's just, you know, I, you know, I am. I am my work. I am what I do. And I, I've, I've always had a supporting family. But I hear you're right. I am who I am. Just get the hell on with it and stop fretting. So I have to ask you, mm. because I do a lot of stuff about mental health yep. and how to get back into yep. a good place where you realise that you are responsible for what you do and what happens to you. Totally responsible. And one of the things that, uh, you know, just common sense, when you're feeling fantastic, Mm. make a list of 10 things that make you feel good. So whatever it may be, from playing with your dog to music to whatever. And you can only do that when you're feeling good. So when you talk about going from, I'm lucky, 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 you've been lucky all your life, and then something hits you, Mm. and you say I could only see the dark side and the bad stuff mm. it was like Can my you head was talk about that a bit more because it was like that's my head was back to front here I am doing these incredible things but I can't see it I'm still fretting about Elton John and Barry Humphreys and all this shit that upset me and it really took that um how do you get that out of so well the therapist got it out of me pretty quick she cracked me right open I cried for a week and then she and it it really is you switching yourself inside the therapist pushes the buttons but you've got to be able to make those decisions and understand them and and move forward in a positive yeah. way and after six weeks i was telling you you don't need any more therapy <laughs> i love that just get on with your life and do what yeah. you do and stop fretting about all this stuff it's irrelevant and Look focus on all the good stuff you know, I'm a strong person, but that was saying, you know, you're right. That was a Fabulous. big thing. It was a big yeah. thing. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing it. And I've got 15 other questions, but we're running out of time because it's only an hour show. Yeah. So thank you so Pleasure. much for Pleasure. sharing, and um, looking forward to burn the floor with the Australian twist. Yeah, with Mitch. It's going to be special.